You're listening to What's Contemporary Now, a show about culture, the people, places, and things that together make it up. In today's episode, we are speaking to Benjamin Husby and Sehad Ishik. After having garnered the attention of the fashion industry with their own label GmbH that was founded out of Berlin, the duo were snatched up to take over the century-old Milanese house of Trissardi. While informing both brands with the threads of their own ethos in respectively unique ways, these guys seem to have a level of humanity that matches their cool kid creativity. We discussed the social codes of different cities, meeting people on the dance floor, and the importance of creating community. They were also kind enough to indulge some of the more invasive questions around the personal journeys that have in many ways shaped the path upon which they tread today. I'm Benjamin Husby. This is Serhat Ishik, and, and we are talking, talking about, about what's contemporary, contemporary now. So, Benjamin and Serhat, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. <laughs> Absolutely. So I want to start in the obvious place, which is on that Berlin dance floor where the pair of you met, what was it, seven years ago at this point? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that legendary dance floor. I mean, this has just become like, a, like an urban myth at this point. I mean, first of all, everyone in Berlin meets like that. So the majority <laughs> of people. So there's nothing magical about it. It's, it's very common. It's very normal. It's very socialized. Honestly, I think literally everyone in my life I met on a dance floor. Okay, so now that we know you don't think that the start is any kind of special, um, <laughs> what, did, what did happen in the beginning? Well, I think it was so much about meeting at a certain point in our lives that was kind of very special. I mean, for me at that point, I had these ideas of wanting to change a little bit what I'd been doing for quite a while. And I started talking about these ideas with Serhat and obviously we just seemed to be so aligned and it just felt like we needed to work on something together. And that's kind of how GmbH got born, I guess. You obviously have a background in fashion photography and other mediums. Sahat has a background in, I want to say, menswear primarily. Is that correct? I always had a focus on menswear, but mm -hmm. I didn't specifically study menswear. I did my master's in design. And so how do those two backgrounds ultimately end up converging into the brand that you guys have created with GmbH? I think in terms of just setup, I was already working as a designer. I had a fully equipped studio. Benjamin had ideas and I was able to pull it off basically. And uh, obviously the stories we were interested in were very aligned. I mean, Benjamin and I come from different ends of the spectrum, kind of growing up as immigrant children in European countries, but we sort of had the same experiences and the same dreams, I guess, when we were growing up. And that kind of brought us together. Yeah, I don't think it was, I mean, when we started, I think it wasn't even so clear what our personal narratives, how that would be so important for the brand. Because in the beginning, we saw it more as a anonymous entity in many ways. And that's why we chose the name. We disguised it as an entity that most people assumed was a collective because we didn't really want the focus to be on us. But, you know, as we progressed and we just realized we had all these both personal and very kind of political stories to talk about, it made sense to actually go out and be a lot more personal and actually put a face to the, to the mission somehow. Well, you've both touched upon different tenets of the brand that the outsider would perceive from 
the political discourse to cultural narratives. How would you guys break down the tenets of the brand? Do you want to start, Sarah? Yeah, it's a very interesting question because it's something we asked ourselves for the first time when we started our new positions in Milan at Trussardi's because I think it's a natural kind of reaction to being appointed to a position like that and taking over another brand. And I think uh, what GmbH is, it's very personal, first of all. It's very sort of niche. It talks about queerness, club culture, our backgrounds, being Muslim, et cetera, et cetera. And, and these are all things that, for instance, Trussardi is not. So it made it very clear to us what GmbH is. Yeah, I mean, I do think that and it's something I say probably all too often, but that things are given meaning through contrast. And so that was something I wanted to segue into the point at which the pair of you arrived at Trisardi, how that came to be. And obviously learning the different social codes of not only those two brands, but even those two cities as far as Milan and Berlin. Mm, I think those two different contexts is something we kind of grapple with and studying. Obviously, Berlin was, it was kind of our lives is what we were living. And now we are in many ways, discovering Milan and also try to kind of unpack the cultural significance of the brand and what it means to us and also what it could mean for the future, especially to like a younger generation who mostly doesn't really know the brand. Outside Italy, a lot of people haven't even heard about it when there's younger people. So it's a kind of very interesting moment dealing with a lot of unexpected kind of tensions, which I think is interesting to us, you know, because I think a lot our work has always been a little bit about attention. At GmbH, the tension was between the German formality of our name and our kind of aspect of not really fitting in or a sense of alienation in where we grew up. Uh, so that, that was kind of the tension. And now it's the tension again of kind of being immigrants in Milan and kind of being outsiders and trying to review this in a new, new way. So I think out of this tension is really how a lot of our ideas come to life. Mm -hmm. Well, and correct me if I'm wrong, but from what I've seen and read, it seems as though you guys have been quite empowered to sort of take the reins and have a cap blanche in what it is that you do with the brand and that a huge portion of the why they brought you over was really what you guys were already representing with GmbH. Yeah, that is true. I think there's this big interest in, you know, revitalizing the brand and giving it a new sense of creativity. And I think that's kind of the main thing. Um, and we're still kind of working out the language, I think, to be honest. Well, also, I mean, Italy as a market in general has historically been slower than most others in terms of New York, Paris, or even London to become more diverse, you know, in, in all ways. I mean, I remember even in terms of shows, it wasn't a city that a person of color typically did well in, you know, not that many years ago. And I remember reading a recent ID interview that the pair of you had done where the title was Inside the Brown Boy Takeover of Milan's Oldest Fashion House. So I'm not sure if that's the journalistic take on the narrative there, or <laughs> if that's something that you guys, you know, spin on your own, or if that's perhaps even the way Trisardi is approaching it. But let's talk about the relevance of your guys' arrival at this brand. I mean, it's not a new place. I mean, my initial thought is that the topic of inclusion and diversity is like dealt with very differently from country to country and on local levels based very much on the local history. And it's just the fact that, you know, compared to New York, Paris or London, 
Milan isn't as multicultural from the get-go. Mm. So uh, mm-hmm. I think that's maybe a starting point. So so maybe it isn't always fair to compare the cities because I think the structural issues that, you know, so let's say racism, for instance, of course, they exist just as much in New York and London and Paris, I would say. I just think some of the more social kind of conversation or let's say social justice conversations obviously haven't really reached the same kind of level in Italy. That is very clear. But I think it's kind of, I think it's on par with similar European countries that have a similar demographic. I don't think like Italy is like a unique case in that many ways. You know, I'm I'm trying not to be too dismissive about Italy because I think what we're learning is that there is definitely like a will to and an interest to change things there which is actually yeah i mean we wouldn't be there otherwise yeah and you have to remember that five years ago or six years ago in paris when we first showed in paris i mean people called our casting which clearly was mostly brown and black i mean in like places like instance the fashion they wrote that our casting was severe or aggressive and I think so much has changed in very short time. And sometimes we forget like how little diversity there was in most of the big fashion cities four or five years ago. Absolutely. And people would even, I mean, literally every journalist would ask us if we're afraid to be political. I mean, it was just six years ago, right? Where people even still assumed that being political in fashion would cancel you or that the question, if you're afraid, was legitimate. Mm. And now you're almost cancelled if you're not political, if you don't have an opinion, if you don't have a stance, if you're indifferent, you know? So I think in just such a short time, a lot has happened. You know, it's funny you say that, Sarah, because I was just thinking the other day that I actually just wondered if things had just stopped and kind of regressed a little bit. Yes. Because I felt like there's definitely been like a moment where social issues were just like very at the forefront. It was kind of hot topic, let's say, I don't know what probably a better phrase for it. But I feel like right now, people want to be over it. People want to forget about it. It seems like most people just kind of want to get on with business, you know? I feel that. I definitely feel that. I mean, this is definitely something we discussed also very, very early on when we started. It's like, oh, how long are are people going to be interested in this topic? Because we've been thinking about this and working around these topics like our whole lives or have been preparing ourselves for it. But there was always this kind of not being really 100% sure if people are really going to come through on this topic, you know? And I think we've sort of like reached a point and it peaked and it sort of feels a little bit like, oh, maybe it was a trend. And um, yeah, I, I can definitely relate to that. You guys also speak about queer culture, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with the show Shit's Creek, but it did very well for a number of reasons. And one of the things that people recognized about the show was the way they approached gay culture, queer culture by not ever making it an issue in the show, despite the fact that they were in a small town and surrounded by people that would typically be assumed to be perhaps homophobic or more conservative or whatever it might be. But the way they approached the storyline differed because it wasn't a rite of passage. It wasn't confronting repressive people or controversy or any of those things. It was just kind of, we're here. And and that beautiful storyline and that example actually served its own purpose and achieved a great deal of impact. And I don't necessarily think that's the case with every subject. So 
you know, when it comes to having the conversation we're having about um, joining an Italian brand and representing the things that you guys do, I think in some scenarios, it would just be about the work and having conversation about the design language and the approach and such. How important do you think it is to be having this type of conversation where we're addressing the sort of marginalized aspects of culture that we are and the infiltration of a more traditional fashion house? Do you think it needs to be discussed? Well, I think like when you say, I mean, what you're mentioning for me, it's a bit like, what is that? Uh, American army policy is like, the don't tell or, or whatever. Don't ask, don't tell. Yeah. Don't ask, don't tell. Sorry. And obviously you have to talk about this topic for it to kind of move forward. But yes, at the same time, you never wanted to overshadow the work you're actually doing. I mean, for anyone who's part of any form of minority, it's always going to be a kind of task to deal with that topic as, as well as doing the job. So it's sort of like a double issue. And I think it's a very personal decision whether you want to deal with that or not. And for us, I think it's just always been kind of impossible to ignore it. For us, it's impossible to have a conversation which is purely about aesthetics and design until we get to a point where it's normal to have brown and black designers everywhere. And you get to the point where there's enough mediocre designers or creatives that are black and brown as well. And, you know, that's kind of what we want to come to a point where it isn't... Just the exceptions. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. For us, that doesn't really seem to be an option, unfortunately. We're not there yet. <laughs> I loved the way you explained it as being akin to infecting an organization with your culture. I thought that was such a cool way of putting it. Essentially, in terms of the arrival at Trissardi and how you guys were understanding the changes that you wanted to see and create in the short time that you've been there. Because at this point, it's been one year, right? Yes, since we signed the contract, I guess it's about a year. I mean, I think from the get-go, I think Trissardi was very interested in us specifically for these topics that we are dealing with. And I think that interested all of them very much because I think they, they see that this is kind of the... F- future. You obviously have already made a certain number of changes at the brand and something that I find to be a common thread across both GmbH and Trisardi is the creating of a community, which, you know, is fundamental to the success of any brand. But it's also something going back to your point of brands needing to have a sort of political stance in a way or a particular type of messaging rather than just being indifferent and exclusively about the fashion. I do also think there's a great value in the creation of a community. So can we talk a little bit about the ways you guys are going about achieving that for both parties? Oh, it comes so natural to us. It's very hard to explain, Mm -hmm. to be honest. But in terms of how you're building it, you guys are sort of creating a friends of the house type of a model, right? I think there is a beautiful overlap with Gambeha and Trusardi. Historically, Trusardi was a brand that was intended to be very inclusive in a different way that we think of inclusive now, but it was always meant to be an aspirational lifestyle, but approachable for everyone because it was making kind of luxury products that wasn't insanely priced. So there's something in the founding ethos that is sort of very much about that inclusivity, which is very opposed to fashion's normal exclusivity and elitism. So that's sort of where there's an interesting overlap with the two brands in a very different way, of course, but it sort of makes sense in our heads, I guess. 
It's funny because to your point of fashion historically valuing exclusivity and elitism, the reality is the, the the motive behind those things is essentially creating cool factor, right? Sort of brand equity and value there. And I think inarguably the pair of you very much represent cool culture. You know, there's youth culture, there's club culture, there's incredible style. There are all these different threads that you guys have woven into the DNA of the work it is you do as designers. And so, uh, I don't know, it's kind of ironic that inclusivity, I suppose, in that way has really become the new cool. I wouldn't say ironic, but you get what I'm saying. I do get what you say, because, because cool was always like, don't sit with us. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and now that's kind of flipped. And, Which we and, never related to, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I, I guess never moved through Paris to pursue a career in the industry, you know? I mean, it kind of needed us to do our own thing for us to found our footing in the industry. And luckily it worked out somehow, but that was definitely always a reason for me to not engage too much in the industry. Yeah, I mean, what sort of... In a traditional sense, Well, that is another interesting point in terms of cities, markets, and places. You guys having founded this in Berlin and kind of really pulling a great deal of inspiration from the culture there rather than those traditional markets where people typically come out of with New York, Milan, Paris, London, whatnot. What sort of benefits do you think there have been to your having decided to operate out of Berlin? Well, there was no noise. Mm -hmm. There's no noise. We could do what we genuinely felt doing. Yeah, and I obviously moved from London to... Berlin to sort of escape fashion a little bit. And then I ended up (laughs) forming a fashion brand a few years later because I hated that I could never escape fashion. It was like you were always available. You were always social and work was just so entwined. And I just couldn't deal with that anymore. I just thought it was really uninteresting. Berlin, I think it attracts people that, I mean, traditionally it has attracted kind of people that are, I guess, a little bit more alternative, <laughs> lack of a better word. Well, you both also touched upon your different but similar backgrounds or things that you found relatable in each other's stories. What would you describe or credit as being the primary factors that really informed your identity through your formative years? You know, you've talked about being children of immigrants and such living in European countries. What experiences have you had to date that you each feel really inform the people you are today? It's a big question. <laughs> yeah. I mean, who are you? Too. That's yeah. a big one. It's like, who are you? Can you tell me? Who am I? <laughs> I just feel like it's such a huge part of the conversation that you guys create in the community that you've really founded and the messaging of your work that it, it fascinated me to sort of get a sense of what you guys would answer to such a question. I mean, it's funny because now I think of what you said earlier, but there are times when we're both get really exhausted by identity politics. I mean, on a personal level, like always having to talk about this because you kind of have to talk about, in part, you have to talk about trauma. You have to talk about like everything that shaped you as a person. So it's such like a big topic. I mean, I think from my perspective, it's like, I mean, I touched on it earlier was that I, I mean, I grew up as like the only brown kid wherever I was on the countryside in Norway, like a brown child in the snow, literally. So I had a, very different upbringing than Sarah in that respect, that it was very rural and 
in a strange way, very free, but I've also always felt like a freak <laughs> and an alien. And I just never really, didn't really feel like I belonged anywhere before I moved to Berlin. And I also had a community of brown, queer people around me, especially creative people, because I didn't have that in London. I Even when I was working in fashion, I did not have that community around me, neither in New York or London or Paris, honestly. You know, yeah, I think it's always been for me this sort of juxtaposition of not belonging and trying to belong and never being able to belong to something. I mean, it, it even starts with just being born in Germany and just never receiving the citizenship. You know, there's always this sort of underlying kind of separation between people and communities. And there are some very structural issues within Germany, like you don't inherit the citizenship or the school system, which we could go into detail and how that sort of like separates and segregates people of different communities. And obviously in this case, brown communities from white communities. And that just kind of drags on into your teenage years of what schools you're allowed to attend or you're kind of like predisposed to be able to attend. And that just forms this kind of dilemma, not knowing where you really belong. And I have a similar experience to Benjamin that when I first moved to Berlin, that I sort of felt for the first time, there was a sense of belonging to a community, to a queer community that I was able to relate to and just be myself. I guess when we met, that sort of felt very unique, that experience that we both had that, but coming from complete different angles, because obviously Benjamin said he grew up without a brown community and I had a huge community here that kind of supported me and oppressed me at the same time because, you know, I was also a gay child, you know, <laughs> and mm -hmm. uh, that also didn't always sit well with my community. And I think it's important to also highlight the difficulties that we have within our communities. In my case, Muslim communities, primarily already sort of like traumatized by kind of having grown up in a society that sort of never wanted them. I mean, my entire family moved back in the 80s because Germany offered guest workers, so to say, money to go back to their countries, you know. So it's, it's sort of, uh, yeah, that was a long-winded answer to no, not at all. Your question, but yeah, <laughs> just a brief, brief sort of introduction to that. Yeah. And having that common thread in the dynamic the pair of you share, I wanted to ask one last question and hear a little bit about the sort of benefits or synergy or symbiosis found in working as a dynamic duo rather than being on your own at any one brand. I think for me, what's been very amazing in this project because I didn't really have much of a, I mean, obviously I have a big Pakistani family in Norway, but I was, I didn't really grow up so close with them. With GmbH and working with Serhat, I really got the appreciation for my own heritage in a way that I didn't really have before. I mean, I've already started a kind of decolonization of my mind since a while already, but I there was just something through Game Bahar that I really got crystallized and being able to sort of 
fine pride in the part of me that I often had pushed a little bit aside because I was trying to fit into a white world and was ignoring. I was sort of like grooming my Norwegian side more than my Pakistani side a lot of the time because that always seems to be a much more successful part of me. <laughs> what do you mean by that? I don't know. Like, I don't know how to say that, but I, I honestly felt like a lot of the places that I got to was almost like contrary to my Pakistani heritage. It was almost in spite of, and that's how it felt. And then with Gambaha, this became really something beautiful and a kind of healing process. I mean, I can also be very personal about this. It's obviously, the reason why I grew up with this kind of shame was because like my dad met intense racism when he came to Norway and decided that I was going to have a fully Norwegian name and not inherit his name, my mother's name instead, and uh, not learn Urdu. I was kind of not allowed to have, not learn about my own culture, essentially, apart from food. So it's kind of like a painful thing that I had to go through. And I didn't realize it was painful before I realized that I'd been a part of, well, a part of my culture had been kept away from me because my dad had been so traumatized by what it meant to be an immigrant in Norway. And he still has never really recovered from that and just felt that I had to be as Norwegian as I possibly could be. That's basically that. <laughs> wow, that's, that's a pretty powerful story. Yeah, it's kind of intense. I mean, my, my mom and my dad, people used to spit on them and throw rocks at them on the streets when they walked down the high street in Norway in the middle of broad day. So it's kind of... Um, Absolutely horrible. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing is those types of stories are so unfathomable to so many people. Um, and, you know, that's the kind of ignorance of privilege. I love so much that you found that type of empowerment and self-actualization in this particular partnership, in this collaboration. I mean, that's an incredibly powerful foundation for you guys to be working upon. We're working on it. We're definitely in a better place. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Serhat, how would you describe the sort of synergy that the pair of you share and the way that informs the work you do together? I mean, honestly, like, I think we wouldn't be able to do what if we wouldn't have each other and wouldn't have met so for me it's just like purely just a fact you know so it's just the appreciation just goes beyond there's so much to be appreciated in the partnership that we have and what we were able to create and build and even the strain it takes on us because we rarely talk about that <laughs> in the industry as well but you know we take it together and it really created the sense of family that we felt we were maybe even abandoned by at a certain point of our lives due to our queerness or, you know, whatsoever. And I think beyond just like having a partnership that works, we have family, like we both family. That's sort of how I would describe it. A beautiful story and a beautiful picture to be painting. Again, I wanted to thank you both for making the time, but we did make it and I'm so happy we did. Yes. Thank no, you thank both. You. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Thanks for listening to this episode of What's Contemporary Now. Special thanks to our show's producer, Cheyenne Asadi, 
Joseph Topmiller and Chase Coughlin of The Black Saw for the original theme music, and Aaron Marr for visual design. Subscribe now for a new episode each week and for additional content find us on social or at whatscontemporary.com.